guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This is our third and final part of our interview with physical preparation coach James Smith, where we continue our discussion on his latest book, Applied Sprint Training. I hope you guys really enjoy this final part of our interview. Right, so we, under, we understand from neuroscience that the proximity of where the sensory input occurs to the sensory cortex means everything. And I, and I use the example of if you touch your nose, the stimuli, the signal sent from the nose versus from the, the appendage that touches the nose, the signal from the nose reaches the sensory cortex faster and it's because of proximity this is why focusing on the proper mechanical execution of arm action it substantiates in in most cases the mechanical optimization of the leg action because the arms closer in proximity to the sensory cortex than the legs the signal in this case the afferent signal sent outward from the sensory cortex reaches the arms first and this is why the action of the arms influences to such a high extent the action of the legs because that same signal that is sent from the cortex reaches the arms before it reaches the legs even though we're talking about a matter of microseconds this points towards the influence of establishing proper arm mechanics and if you do this in most cases, not all, so this is not an absolute statement, but in most cases, the optimization of the arm action will clean up any issues, most issues that are occurring with the leg action. Not always, but most of the time. Yeah, in the manual too, you said that you're kind of a proponent of queuing yeah, down, 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 and, and letting the reflex t- take care of the flexion part of the of the arm cycles and then um, you also spoke about the angles too that the angles can vary a lot between sprinters you get a lot of people saying all oh, the angles have to be exactly like this and you were saying what well, it, it, it can just vary and he gave the, the example of Powell he's a very very aggressive extension of his arm in his initial stages so uh, I, that was all very very interesting stuff in terms of uh, the hamstring rehab I really enjoy that too and, and it's something that I can't remember who I spoke to it about actually on the podcast, but one thing that people oh Derek Hansen that's who I spoke about when Derek was on the podcast, like you, people do get a hamstring injury and all their rehab is all you know it's in the gym in a very controlled base very forebrain very conscious, and then it never goes back to like they never do any running or sprinting where they actually hurt their hamstring was when they were running and it, it they never integrate any of this sort of subconscious. Uh, or volitional outputs that happen um, or these reflective sort of uh, re- reflective um, abilities or essentially these sub- subconscious uh, traits that happen when we start reaching maximum velocities so maybe just touch on that too and the ground reaction forces too the, like these things just aren't in taking into consideration with hamstring rehab and I really like the way you, you put that across too in the book well you know again it it has to do with the factionalized system in which the sport industry is, is based upon. And, and you know, we, we, we could go from one to the next regarding the mistakes that are made in medical, physiotherapeutic, performance, technical, tactical, psychological, yeah. and, and it's all for the same reason. So on the topic of the physiotherapeutic one, and, and this is the physics speaking, if we look at the fundamental basis of physiotherapy, physiotherapy. It, it, it is a process that leads towards return to the performance of sport. It is not a means in and of itself, nor is the medical one, nor is the performance coach, nor is the psychological. These are all means to the athlete being able to re-engage in the case of physiotherapy, re-engage at the competitive level. So the question then becomes, what 
does the competition structure consist of? What is the fundamental basis of the competition structure? This is what must guide the physiotherapy. So in the, in the context of the hamstrings, we look at what is the fundamental basis for the function of the hamstrings? How do they operate in the sport in question? And so when we're talking about so many of these field sports and the means by which the hamstring injury occurs, of course, this leads us to a whole other topic of discussion regarding mechanical optimization and load management. Yeah. If, we, if we excuse that for a moment and simply talk about the rehabilitation, we, we have to answer the question, what are we preparing the injured hamstring for? Yeah. And how must it function? And so this is where we begin to look at the kinematic function of the hamstring during sprinting and changing direction and decelerating and all these things that the field athlete has to do and looking at the rehabilitation in this objective sense, many of us are left scratching our heads because we're looking at the physiotherapeutic environment and what we're seeing is an absence of physical actions that serve to develop the precursor for what ultimately will end up as sprinting and changing direction and decelerating and all these things. And instead, what we're seeing is a predominance of tonic exercises, balance exercises. And this is not to diminish the importance of that type of work, but similar to the sprint discussion that we had earlier, we're not, we cannot in no way make a living off of exclusively performing these means in the absence of these, in this case, much more relevant activities that are essential to rehabilitate the athlete based upon the nature of what the athlete must be rehabilitated for. Yeah. So this is why the power speed drills, <clears throat> and you notice Derek, and, and of course I give Derek credit in the book, and Charlie and all these other people who talk about these things, who have outlined the importance of ensuring that hamstring rehab for the speed power athlete must consist of a variety of drills that serve to recondition the muscle for the dynamic and the energetic nature of what the sports structure consists of. Yeah. And in this, in this way, it's just, it's very I've just given a very practical explanation. It's very obvious, yet it's absent in so many physiotherapeutic environments. Yeah. In which, you know, in which case, you know, it's interesting looking at sport preparation and the way that it currently exists in so many cases is the equivalent of ordering food a la carte because you're ordering the vegetable a la carte, and the starch a la carte, and the protein a la carte. It, it's a piecemeal system. Because there's the physiotherapy over in that room over there with those people. And there's the psychology in that room over there with that person. And there's the performance coaching at this point in the day with those people. And then there's the technical tactical coaching at this point in the day over there and if something really goes wrong you go over to that building and that's where the medical thing is yeah. and the lack of cohesion between all of these is what contributes to the dysfunction in addition to any amount of incompetence that exists in each individual department yeah, yeah. and this a la carte method of physiotherapy in which case you're working to relengthen muscle tissue and establish amplitudes of movement and develop the, the, the force absorption properties of the muscle in a lengthened state and the proprioceptor advancement, all these things that are viable and then simply turning the athlete over to another department to therefore, whether it's pick up where they left off or take it one step further. And the problem is very similar to the culinary one. Because let's say we factionalize the preparation of a meal so much 
meat is on another plate, the glaze is on another plate, the, all, of, all of a sudden, in a, in a high-quality five-course meal, we have 96 plates on the table because no food ingredients are touching any of the other ingredients. Well, what type of a meal does that make? Because even if we're, even, I use the a la carte analogy, even if we're ordering a la carte, those individual food items are still prepared via a holistic, cohesive, synergistic means, and so they're seasoned unto themselves, even if they're on a different plate. But what happens if we segregate them so much, such as in the case of sport, in which case we have so many different moving pieces that they're unable to inter interact synergistically. So, so regardless of what happens in the physiotherapeutic domain, and even if it's so nonspecific to the muscle contractile velocities and other dynamic principles that must be central to the rehabilitation, even if it's only at a very elementary level of movement amplitude, proprioceptive reacquisition, muscle lengthening, force absorption, etc., and then turned over to the next department, the question is, what is the synergistic operation that exists between them? What is the cohesion? How is the holistic transformation taking place such that the end product is ultimately prepared? And I can answer the question because in most cases, we simply see re-injury. Yeah. So again, I must point everyone's attention towards the necessity to not only develop competence in every respective field, but what's more, to ensure that the holistic operation, the holistic synergy that exists between them is optimized in order that the end product is as optimally prepared as is possible given the resources. So when, when bringing someone back just from a you know, hamstring issue, so like as, as alluded to in the question, you're, you're seeing, you know, uh, uh, in terms of the physiotherapist, like it's, it's all very uh, conscious-based driven activities with no running aspect involved and then like the reason why i'm saying conscious based activities too in the weight room is because when you when you go out and you obviously start sprinting at high velocities we know that that's very reflex driven very subconsciously driven and um, and then as we've alluded to as well like you know there's no there's no appreciation for the biodynamics the biomotor qualities the bioenergetics so just in terms of someone coming back from rehab and and integrating it back into running and you do touch on this in the manual beautifully too with with the marching up up steps you know linear and lateral marches for different sort of um uh force um uh, forces that act upon the body like what what do you do initially with with somebody coming back from a hamstring in terms of their rehab right so it all depends you know the case specific scenario the w which muscle was affected in what way was it affected what is the what is the degree of if any structural deformation and this is where we begin to answer that question in terms of where in this process are we able to start based upon the kinematic and neuromuscular stresses that the athlete will experience as a result of the rehabilitation yeah. so it, it's highly individualized because as you know every pole is a bit different in terms of where in the muscle which muscle the degree of deformation, etc. What's critical, again, is to answer these questions th that are rooted in, well, what is it that they do and must be reconditioned for? And when we work backwards from that, this is where we get these sequences of movement activities, such as what you referenced that I indicate in the book. Okay, well, if you can't sprint, then maybe you can perform this drill with both legs. Yeah. Well, if you can't perform the drill with both legs, you can perform the drill with one leg. Well, if you can't perform the drill in a dynamic fashion, you can perform it perhaps in a skipping fashion. If you cannot perform it in a skipping fashion, you can perform it in a marching fashion. If you cannot perform it in a marching fashion, perhaps you can perform it in a walking fashion. So yeah. we, we begin to look at this foundational scheme of what leads to what and we interject the athlete at that point of intersection 
where they can tolerate it based upon what's appropriate relative to the specifics of their condition. And, you know, I mentioned the massage and how Derek and Charlie and others have long since elaborated upon the fundamental importance of the hands-on therapy in terms of the optimal alignment as much as possible of any scar tissue that might develop as a result of structural damage and how in so many cases this hands-on therapy does not occur. And so regardless of what you're doing, and, and of course these other things, it's not to diminish the, the efficacy of all these other movement forms in terms of the tonic work and the muscle lengthening under load. These are all important. However, in the absence, particularly if there's structural deformation, in the absence of hands-on therapy, you're effectively asking for problems to happen again. Yeah. Because, because of the way that we know the scar tissue aligns haphazardly mm -hmm. relative to the direction of muscle fiber. Yeah. So whether it's the hands-on therapy, whether it's the dynamic movement forms and what kind and all other movement forms, the answer is it depends and it's based upon the specific conditions surrounding the state of each athlete and how the muscle was pulled. Yeah, you, you even spoke about like the difference between how you'd rehab someone if the pull was more proximal versus distal so that's all in the book for people to to check out as well so the the uh the last two things so the just for the, li the listeners as brief well i know i'm not in any particular rush but as briefly as you want like speak about this work specific capacity i know dan fast speaks about this as well right so again this is one of those subjects that one would think is so obvious due to the relationship between the subject matter that is going to substantiate the discourse that, that we, we are about to have and, and related to what we've been having and, and what actually constitutes the sport structure. So, so back to Charlie's statement of look at the players, not the game. I don't care what the sport is, whether we're back to track and field and whether it's sprinting with shot put, the pole vault, or Gaelic football, or Aussie rules, or rugby union, it doesn't matter. The spectrum, this Nordic events, events on the ice, everything. And we task ourselves with identifying the task-specific work capacity of each athlete in their competitive endeavor. So these things are literal. What type of work must they have the capacity to repeat? What type of specific work? So here, this is where the time motion analysis and other forms of assessment come into play. We are performing whether we have advanced diagnostic resources at our disposal or not, we are performing an objective breakdown of the structure of sports, the task-specific structure. What is it specifically that each athlete does and must do to a high level, to what extent, to what intensity, at what velocity, at what physiological capacity over the course of the competition? So the development of task-specific work capacity clearly reflects those task-specific components that together constitute the competitive event. And what we know from the basis of preparation is that the very beginning of preparation, the very beginning of the year, the very beginning of the, of the process of preparing a very young athlete at a very young age, doesn't matter, must begin with some semblance of task-specific preparation. Because this is the body of work over time that determines the quality of performance we're able to demonstrate in the competition. Because, because what, we, what we will actualize as athletes will be a reflection of every dimension of preparation that took place the days, the weeks, the months, the years prior. Everything is a reflection of what has been done from the psychological 
to the technical, to the sensory motor, to the physical, to the physiotherapeutic in terms of how we've been rehabbed and the shape that we're in, and the medical. Everything that, that happens during a competition is a representation of what the preparation consisted of. So if the preparation does not consist of every psychological, technical, tactical, sensory motor, physical, physiotherapeutic, medical approach that has been optimized relative to the task-specific structure of the sport, then invariably what we will see is a competitive demonstration representative of preparatory dysfunction in the only way in which that competitive demonstration of those athletes will be able to supersede the preparatory dysfunction is if they are really talented and highly inspired by their work ethic. Yeah. And that brings us back to, you know, how can a sports team or a sports club perform well for a long time amidst a high degree of preparatory dysfunction? And the answer is, if the athletes are really talented and they're really motivated, they will compensate. Yeah. Yeah. However, I don't, you know, look at, look, look at the great All Blacks just winning the Rugby World Club. And they've been a perennial powerhouse for so long winning two World Cups in a, in a row with this most recent one, just fantastic. However, we must look closer and look at well, what are the most prevalent mechanisms to success. And when we do that, whether it's the All Blacks or whether we go and, and identify any other sports team anywhere in the world in any sport in history that's been dominant, what we find in effect is that it has much more to do with the popularity of sport in that area of the world and their, the participation and the culture and the culture that drives the competitive nature of the athletes. Those are the commonalities we find, not some sort of preparatory advancements or uniqueness to the intellectual aptitude that's been directed towards those preparatory schemes, much more so simply the abundance of a requisite talent pool from which to pick due to the popularity of the sport and the culture that exists to drive the, that group to compete at a high level. And so this is what we see when, when we look closer and to, 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 to circle back around to the task-specific work capacity, it's very simple. We must prepare according to what we must achieve. We must prepare according to what we must demonstrate at a high level if we are to achieve competitive success. And therefore, certain aspects of the task-specific biomotor, biodynamic, and bioenergetic structure must be present in the preparation, even at the very early stages. So just to, to, to summarize that as well as that, you just said there that there has to be some sort of uh, specificity in terms and relation to the sport in the training plan all year round. Again, it, it, how, it, it, how much it is within the plan is going to vary on what sort of block or phase you are in your training. But it's the idea that, that every successive you know, training year, if you like, or you know, let's say years, that every successive year that that specificity is increasing in terms of its intensity and its mastery that you know the accumulation of these years will lead to a higher level of sports form is, is that kind of where we're getting at with bu building this specific work capacity well only i could only answer yes to your question if the succession of years was constituted by intelligently structured yeah. workloads. Yeah, yeah. That, so that, that, that's, that, that's, that's the assumption with that question. Right, because as we know, simply repeating something doesn't really tell us anything other than we'll be good at whatever we were repeating and the way we were repeating it. And so if, if, if you're repeating dysfunction, then we're going to be demonstrating dysfunction. Yeah. So, so yes, if, and this, again, this is something that Charlie Francis elaborated upon over, you know, 30 years ago now, if the preparation is complete and sound and well thought out, each passing year will render a greater percentage of specific, specific preparation, specific preparation. And a lesser percentage of general preparation.
Yeah. I mean, what 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 are what are the like unbelievable light bulb moments reading Charlie's key concepts? was when he compares the volume of Ben's high intensity running volume to the, to the traditional periodization model and it was something like Ben's total annual volume for high intensity running which is specific work capacity was something like 60 to 70 thousand meters and then in the, in the old classical traditional model it only accumulates to 6 thousand and he's like who's going to win <laughs> and again you know you, it's one of those things where if you're not already keen to this sort of intellectual property, it it becomes a it becomes an aha moment moment for those individuals who are not already keen to that way of thinking. Yeah. If you if you are keen to that way of thinking, your response is simply, "Well, of course, that makes perfect sense." Oh yeah, like but that's when I it, yeah exactly. It's just it's, you know, and, yeah. and and we and again, I I'm I'm always so. I'm always so quick to draw analogies from other domains, which everyone is already familiar with. And so this is why we know the beginning of medical school is constituted by an abundance of task-specific study. Anatomy and physiology and dissection, all of it. The beginning of any structured higher education curriculum. What, What does a PhD or a master's course in, in one of the realms of physics or biology or chemistry, all of it is substantiated on the basis of task-specific fields of study. Because at, at that point, because we're talking high-performance sport here, at that point, you have, now, this is provided optimized preparation has occurred, which we know it does not in so many cases, but in those instances in which it does, we know that you have long since graduated from the elementary forms of education. And so this is why the curriculums in medical school, in law school, in any variety of PhDs for the scientific realm or the engineering realm are constituted by a, pro- a vast proportion of specific fields of study unlike what, depending upon where you are in the world in terms of primary school or elementary education, unlike the proportionality of what those curriculums consist of. So if I'm working with a four-year-old who, is the, who, who we have somehow determined, which would be irresponsible, but just for the sake of conversation, if I'm working with a four-year-old male who we've determined is going to be a, a, a national team rugby union player in 20 years, we we still know, even if somehow that determination has been made, which, which it could not be with any responsible measure, but let's say for sake of conversation it has been made, we know that it would be asinine to introduce a proportion of skill work specific to rugby and specific to the position. Because let's say we've determined he's going to be a loose head prop, and we've determined this in 20 years is going to be the national team captain, he's going to play loose head, and this is how it's going to be, it would still be asinine to constitute the training load volume for that four-year-old with the same proportionality as the existing national team loose head prop is undergoing. And similarly, the things that we would do with that four-year-old in terms of the, the modified gymnastics and the swimming and the basic body positioning and these other things that would be appropriate and, and in which volumes would be ridiculous for the current national team loose head to yeah. be doing in his preparation. That's a, that's a great analogy, yeah. You know, and it, we, we see this all around us via these domains which we can pull from interdisciplinary, and, and for some reason they escape. I shouldn't say for some reason. The reason is because the sports are so new. We're in the Stone Age, and that is why what is so obvious and I can pull 36 different analogies from 36 different domains, which no one could refute. It's no one could repudiate the logic. And then, every, in that instance in which the paradigm shift occurs in thinking, that is when, in the sports domain, coaches are met with the recognition. So many of them. Who have not been having these conversations are met with the recognition 
that they have been so flawed for so long. And now the question is whether they're able to resolve the conflict with their own ego in order to take a step forward. James, I'm going to have to wrap up my, the, so on this last question because I need to eat. I'm starving. <laughs> I uh, But I want to get this last question in. So I was having a discussion with a friend the other day you know, uh, about Olympic lifting and I, I was telling him I don't really utilize the Olympic lifts much with, with athletes for numerous reasons. And he just came back to me with the fourth velocity curve. He says, well, what do you do for strength speed uh, qualities? And I was like, strength speed is just a bar velocity you, you can use many things to develop strength speed you don't have to use Olympic lifts but in his mind he's like well on the fourth velocity curve in his mind he's like well the strength is like our max strength stuff the strength speeds Olympic lifts the speed strength is our jumping med ball throws and our speeds are speed and he's like I feel if you don't do Olympic lifts you're, you're not going to train the strength speed part of the curve and I was just like again I was like there's loads of ways to train strength speed without having to train Olympic lifting as well so I know uh, like I, I know this could be a 10 minute answer but like what, what would you say to that if you had to briefly summarize it well if I'm going to be as brief as possible be as brief as possible you've already given the information necessary to end the discussion which is your associate stating well I feel like yeah because in my mind I don't care what you feel like <laughs> and, and I, don't, I don't care what somebody told you I care what you can show me on an irrefutable basis. That's exactly what I said to him also because we discussed it and I said, listen, I'll, I'll sit down with an email. It's also easy to kind of write out your, your discussion, I think, and then read it. And then, like, so uh, one of the things I was saying is that a lot of coaches, right, I think they believe that their Olympic lifting is somehow training strength speed. And it may well be, but a lot of them are believing that it's training strength speed and therefore this is increasing their athlete's explosiveness or vertical jumps. And I'm just like, there's no way anyone can prove that because there's too many other variables in their program. And plus, strength speed is just a fucking velocity. 0 0.75 to 1 meters per second of Brian Mann's work. And speed strength is 1.0 1 to 1.3. Is like, you can use any means. And I was like, like you'd all say, you know, the, the, the Olympic lift is just a means it's just an exercise there's so many different other exercises and means you could use so I was saying to him like there is so many other means to train strength speed as your training but as I was just sorry alluding to there as well I've done a lot of rambling on this podcast but fuck it it's my podcast so <laughs> that's right uh, the um, the just before you go on there the the uh, um, the, the oh, I lost my train of thought there. It was about bar, bar velocity anyway. That you can use any, you can use many means to train to train that uh, to train that 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 quality of strength speed. Well, it's that's true. And the I not too long ago I gave a lecture on on global sport concepts in which I actually elucidated the futility in many cases of even thinking in terms of velocity based training. Oh. How, how that's even in most cases an utter waste of time and wow, you can listen wow. to that if you're interested yeah yeah so, yeah definitely big time big time so again i would draw everyone's attention back towards the structure of sport yeah. and what that consists of what type what magnitude of velocity and how the velocity is generated what type and magnitude of force what are the biodynamic conditions under which the force is generated what are the force velocity curves yeah. for all these actions irrefutably and, yeah. when we and that, 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 that's, that's actually another question I wanted to ask too the fact that like the sport that we were mainly coaching is Gaelic games the other thing I said to him too was that like the, the velocity of the sport is so much faster than what street spends than, than what strength speed would be put down I know you're just saying velocity is a lot of bodies but the, the, the velocities that occur in an activity of strength speed are much slower than what actually occur out in the field like so would there even be a need to be like oh we have to actually develop this specific part of the force velocity curve well, again this is the problem with the, with the strength coach Robbie and how they're so narrow minded in this thing yeah yeah, you know, the, the irony is how for a period of years I worked as one, and the irony was at the same time that I was working as one, when I would give presentations and consultations, here I am the one saying, yes, I'm, I'm employed and this is my job title, however, my job should not exist, and I should not have a job. <laughs> this, is, this is the irony, because, you know, it's yeah. just created this whole wealth of different problems. So yeah. here, here's the situation. 
we, we understand the sports structure. If we're talking about the Gaelic games and, and we look at the nature of movement and the, the nature of the nature of every specific movement. And you ask yourself to what extent is velocity developed and how, to what extent is force developed and how. And then we, and then you look at one of the Olympic weightlifting variants and you, and you see there is so little relationship because on a velocity component, the fast, and now I'm talking about an elite Olympic weightlifter here performing the snatch or the clean and jerk, or, or the snatch or the jerk, which are the two fastest movements, and we're looking at right around two meters per second with a substantial load, which is not to be compared to, you know, yes, uh, some novice person. And we, we 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 actually spoke about Olympic lifts on our previous podcast, and we, we alluded to this point that right do 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 even most athletes who are using the variations are they even is, are they even using enough uh, load to be sufficient to actually get a stimulus or get a benefit from exactly right, which then leads us towards well how proficient you have to be to safely perform it yeah. with a greater load. So we look at and this points towards the velocity based training criticism that I made. Anything you can do in the weight, well, I'll, I'll rephrase that. Most of the things that are currently done in a weight room via these conventional movements, whether they're presses, squats, pulls, jerks, cleans, what have you, are so incredibly slow in comparison to the velocity-based actions that occur in a sport competition. And, and the forces that act upon the body, too. Absolutely. And so there, there is just... there's dozens of reasons why not only the Olympic lifts but a variety of velocity based movements are utterly futile to perform in the preparation of an athlete again based upon the structure of the sport now this is not to dismiss the conditions that exist at the beginning part of the working amplitude and this is where the velocity based movement preparation has more justification when we look at the very beginning part of executing a movement based upon the beginning part of the working amplitude because things are slower and if we're exerting against the force then we can see justifications for different types of force training performed as fast as possible of course there's a justification for that however in the context of this explosive training we now the counter to that is okay will you show me the biodynamics of the sport maneuver that match the biodynamics of this preparatory maneuver that you are arguing for on the basis of a faster strength movement or, or whatever the velocity is associated with the strength movement. And that's where the Olympic lifts, as well as so many other exercises, fail. Mm. The biodynamic failure. And, and Isserin talked about this in the 80s in his publications. Yeah, yeah. The, the distinction to be made between kinematic similarity and neuromuscular similarity yeah yeah I, so, I think i think you also spoke that obviously it, there is a slight context to it if an athlete's in a cold weather position and that might be their only way of getting sufficient training stimulus so obviously you're always you're always open up to context situations as well absolutely there are you must be very cautious and there are very few possibilities of absolutes yeah for, for issuing an absolute, and yeah. so I'm, I am very mindful of when I am issuing one, such as, well, I can tell you for certain and without repudiation from anyone that a Gaelic Games athlete better be proficient in the Gaelic Games. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, that's about where it begins and ends. But the, 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 sorry, the point that I had the brain fired on there, saying that the point I, I was kind of alluding to was that you get a lot of coaches, again, who are like, well, we, we utilize Olympic lifts for, for this for this reason and whether it's we're developing strength speed or whether it's development of explosive strength and it's, and as I was kind of I already alluded to it's like but you can't justify that to me because there's too many under like you're sprinting and throwing medicine balls and doing jumps in your program so how do you know you're not getting the stimulus through these means like unless there was some way you could isolate this out and then usually what happens too is that their athletes don't perform the well and actually don't have sufficient enough load on it too so that's the other argument that I was making and then oh. And then the other question I had that I alluded to earlier on is like, do we actually really want to single out like strength, speed, and train it 
when the velocities and forces that happen actually in the sports specific tasks have are nowhere near that they're they're completely on different realities like well again and th- this is the folly of the strength coach always always seeking for means to to justify their existence yeah yeah yeah, and, yeah. and here's the thing and and again charlie pointed this out w- w- with respect to the force time curve and the behavior of that curve based upon what you stimulate in terms of points along that curve. So if, for example, we isolate a sport, in which case high force production, absorption, etc., in a tonic sense, is designated as one of the task-specific attributes, let's say a forward in rugby union. Mm-hmm. So now we say, okay, yes, High forces generated in slow contexts, high forces generated based upon the fast development of force, in the case of rate of force development in the scrum, etc. So now, how will we develop those? Once again, we see how we can eliminate the Olympic lifts because if we simply develop force attributes via hip extension and we develop velocity attributes via sprints and jumps and the med ball work etc what we will see specifically transmuted via the specific practice of scrummaging on a scrum device or a scrum drive such as such as the the rig that i've used with a barbell on a squat rack where you can drive into it mm-hmm. and, and any which way where we're transmuting these other developments into the specific sport form we will see similarly to how you you, you see the improvements of the yo-yo, even though your athletes are not practicing the, the yo-yo. yo-yo. Yeah. They're sprinting and they're doing aerobic work. Well, similarly, if we transplant the aerobic indicator to a force, a rapid force development indicator, mm-hmm. which of course has to be specific to the sport. So if it's a rugby forward, we can utilize the scrum driver. You, know, you pick your sport and we would pick a specific way to measure what we would find is simply getting stronger in the tonic sense and simply getting faster in the velocity sense via forms of movement that are relevant and specific, you cannot see the difference. So what, it, so what this is to say is if we take a world-class Olympic weightlifter and a world-class powerlifter what do either of those abilities tell us about their potential to perform well in an explosive strength dominant sport specific action that involves hip and leg extension and the and the answer is nothing because then this is why the elite in so many different explosive strength dominant sport disciplines such as rugby union forwards and American football down linemen as two examples could in no way compete with a world class Olympic weightlifter or powerlifter in their own discipline we have to consider the demand of putting all the demands neuromuscular, physiological, etc the demand of putting such an emphasis on non-specific preparation and what that begins to compete with. Mm-hmm. So if the, the endeavor is to now be as strong as possible on a barbell, you have now become an incompetent strength coach. I don't care whether it's the Olympic clean, whether it's the squat, any of it. You've yeah. now become incompetent yeah. because that is not what sport results are determined by. Exactly. E- even, the, even the sports that have a very high force demand in the terms of a tonic or an explosive setting, such as, such as the forwards in rugby union and the American football down, line, down line. And even in that setting, the way the forces are generated are so different than the kinematic and neuromuscular characteristics of any conventional strength training exercise, which is why 
these conventional strength training exercises, unless we're talking about the preparation of an Olympic weightlifter or a powerlifter, etc., are simply adjuncts. They're just much, they're just means, as you say, means to an end, and there's many and, and there's many means, many roads lead to Rome. So that that is why if we if if we are measuring a specific sport movement in terms of its force output capabilities, it immediately becomes a wash between these non-specific means. Because even if it's something as simply as a jump, you know what what I've utilized in historically, I spent a few years preparing athletes for the for the for the NFL Combine, so the, the, the Professional American Football League physical assessments of sprinting and jumping, etc. And every single time I've prepared a group, I've had a number of the top performers in the entire Combine. So it's, it's 300, uh, right around 300, a little less, who are invited. And I, I, every time I've prepared a group, I've had top performers, not only in their own position group, but in the entire combine in terms of vertical jump, sprints, etc. Mm -hmm. And I've never had an athlete perform an Olympic lift because if they're being performed in a, if they're being evaluated in a test of sprinting, then what I can tell you irrefutably is they must be trained in sprinting. And if, if they are evaluated in a test of jumping, what I can tell you is they, their training must consist of jumping. So that is what the training has consisted of. Yeah. Jump progressions, sprint training, and general strength training. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if repeatedly I'm able to show irrefutably the quantifiable measurement of all these athletes had the highest vertical jumps by position and in the entire combine and were the fastest in the 40-yard dash, which is what is measured not only in their position groups but in the entire combine, then what does that tell you? That what they are doing should be looked at and what they're not doing is performing Olympic weightlifting exercises because that's not where they're being evaluated in. Yeah. James, so all right, no, go, go ahead. Yeah, so what I'll just conclude with is we, we understand how the points of the curve may be stimulated by any other points of the curve, so why wouldn't we begin to eliminate points of preparation on the curve to eliminate training load volume, to eliminate stress on the body, structural, physiological, neuromuscular? Why would we not eliminate the endeavor to perfect a technical movement form, why would we not eliminate all these additional non-essentials if we don't require them to advance the performance of sport? Yeah, as you, as you actually said on the last podcast and in your manual, that no one that's run under 9.8, uh, or anyone that's run under 9.8, all they had was general strength programs as well. Very general. And... and the best rugby union forward, the best American football down linemen, or the fastest 100-meter sprinters, none of them could compete, could even think about competing in a strength discipline mm -hmm. to the level of their contemporaries in Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting, etc., without stopping their preparation as a rugby player or as an American football player yeah, yeah, yeah and redirecting their efforts towards being a powerlifter or an Olympic weightlifter. As you know, you mentioned Buddy Morris, who's a, who's a great friend of mine, one of his, his perhaps his most uh, classic and humorous one-liners is, one ass cannot ride two horses. Yeah. All right, so James Smith, that's uh, <laughs> this is where I, I interviewed Derek Evely a few weeks back, and we went for like two hours and 12 minutes, but we, we were after smashing that record, two hours and 42 minutes. So I may I may put this into like a part one and part two. But finally, just uh, give us a plug on your website and a plug on your, your book. So the, the book is called The Applied Sprint, Applied Sprint Training. You can get it on James's websites and just tell the listeners where they can find your uh, website, James. Thank you. So I have athleteconsulting.net where you can purchase the book along with, I think there might be 13 full-length lectures. Mm -hmm. And globalsportconcepts.net 
is my lecture site, which I currently have 61 streaming audio lectures. They're all about 20 or 30 minutes, and the, the topics vary considerably, and many of them are based upon member requests in which I speak towards a topic that a member, a member requests. And, and most recently, as I mentioned to you, I, I, my most recent submission is on the topic of epigenetics. That's globalsportconcepts.net. That and all that will be in the show notes and I'm a big epigenetic guy environment dictates an organism's expression but uh, just for the listeners too guys global sports concepts is absolutely brilliant like it's uh, it's like it's seven dollars a month to be a member and the information is like just scandalous so I mean for anyone who really takes the physical preparation of athlete series you need to get on that I mean it's an absolute it's daylight robbery to be only charging that much for it to be honest but James, absolutely outstanding. Thank you so much for your time. As I said, I'm, I'm about to eat my hand here, so I'm going to let you go. So uh, just stay on the line now for just 20 seconds while I, while I wrap up the podcast. So guys, absolutely unbelievable podcast with Coach James Smith. Oh, just You're going to have to listen through this like two, three, four, five, even ten times. And the fact that it's almost three hours long it means you have a lot to listen to. Get the notepad out and start taking notes. But for everyone listening, thanks a million, guys. Take care. I'll talk to you soon and stay strong.